0: Well, hello everybody. My name is Dom, if I haven't met you. So glad to be with you and to open God's Word with you. Uh, just before we get started, um, I've heard it once said that marriage is like eating with chopsticks. It's easy until you try it. Now, I recognize that I'm probably speaking to people who are all too familiar with the humble tool of the chopstick. Not just because many of you grew up using chopsticks, but even in our city of Sydney... People are generally pretty good with it, right? Pretty good with breaking the chopstick, picking things up with the chopstick, eating with the chopstick. But my question to you this morning is this, how do you hold the chopstick? Are you holding it in the right way? Now, I'll be the first to admit I don't use the chopsticks in the right way. Who reckons they do? Hands up if you reckon you've got the chopstick nailed down correctly. Hands up? Oh, not many. Seriously? Seriously? Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty kind of cool. So uh, here's a picture. Here's a picture from a tourism post uh, in Japan um, kind of telling us the right way to hold it. So apparently there's about one centimeter that protrudes between the back end. The thumb touches the side of the index finger nail. Uh, you gently grasp the chopstick between your thumb, index, middle finger. You on, Did you know this? You only are meant to move the top one. You don't move the bottom one. Um, you touch the, the side of the thing ring fingernail you brace in the. I don't even know this is the proper way apparently right now looking at that who are the people who held their hands up still hold their hands up Oh, confident I like it now oh clap yeah sure why not um now for those of you who realize they don't much like me here's another picture for a bit of a quick tutorial have a read you firstly you uh, rest the first chopstick in a crooked thumb you hold the second chopstick like a pencil you move top chopstick toward to pick up rice watches all but three grains of rice fall back on plate, repeat above steps two to six, and then you give up and use a fork. Yeah. Now, like I said, uh, I don't hold the chopstick in the right way. I kind of hold it like a pen. Uh, and, I, and I know I hold it wrong, but it works. It works for me. I can kind of pick up most things readily, but I don't, uh, and I know I don't hold it like the picture suggests. My dad, though, my dad, he holds the chopstick right. Uh, I remember him trying to teach me as, he, as I was growing up, but I just didn't have the coordination. Just moving the top chopstick didn't make any sense to me. And so he kind of just gave up, right? As long as I could kind of use it, kind of use it to, in, a, in a decent way, uh, it was good enough for him. But that was good. That wouldn't have flown for my dad as he was growing up. See, he needed to get it right. What? Why? Well, out of necessity. If he didn't, he'd get yelled by my grandparents, The bamboo stick might have even come out, right? If he didn't hold it properly, he wouldn't be efficient enough. He had seven brothers and sisters to compete to to, to get this food, right? He had to get it right. He had to be quick. Lastly, they didn't have serving spoons. So so you're just chopping at the the plate of food on your own. So germs are about. So if if, if you're kind of like misplaced, you're picking it up, dropping it back again and all over the place, people are going to yell at you. So my dad, he needed to get it right. Now the reason I bring up chopsticks is two reasons. Firstly, uh, chopsticks is related with food. And as you may have noticed in our reading today, we're we're talking a bit about food. Uh, It's a poor reason, I know. Uh, But secondly, and much more importantly, there's this idea that there is a right way to do things. That there's a right way to do things. Now at the risk of making massive generalizations, I reckon this idea, of a right way to do things, at least at some level, sits at odds with Aussie culture. We Aussies were kind of famous for being informal. We're famous for being casual. I remember one of our student ministers, no guesses who, once telling me that if he could wear thongs everywhere, even in winter, he'd love that. He would. But it's not just clothing, is it? You talk to people around the world and even our accents... And how we use the English language and grammar is much more informal and casual. We shorten our words. We don't pronounce every syllable. And plus, we generally kind of pride ourselves really on being a laid-back bunch. And so while we often, um, while we agree, right, that there's often a right way to do things, unless it's absolutely necessary, we don't have to dot every I and cross every T. Now, this idea of getting it right, it's been a bit of a theme over our last few chapters in 1 Corinthians, hasn't it? Paul's really been hammering home to the Corinthian church in his letter that to them that getting it right is absolutely necessary when it comes to the idea of worship. You go back to chapters 8 to 10, they're all about uh, their indulging in idolatry. See, these Corinthians, they were participating in these idol feasts and they were compromising their worship of God as they did this. They were harming others in the church as they did this. Paul warns in chapter 10 that uh, the trajectory, if they continue to do this, is kind of like how the Israelites would end up when they perished in the desert because of their idolatry. It didn't matter how spiritually blessed the Israelites were. Their bodies still ended up being scattered in the wilderness. See, this stuff is a matter of life and death. You have to get this right. The tone of Paul's words up to now has been pretty strong and very firm. See, there's a right way to worship God. And as we pick up from verse 17 of chapter 11 this week, as Wendy uh, read it out for us, right off the bat, you would have heard him saying, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Right? Paul again here, he's teaching the Corinthians right practice in their worship. Now, we're going to see instances in the passage where Paul's also going to say words like this, your meetings do more harm than good. You despise the church of God. You drink judgment on yourselves. This is strong stuff. Now, before we dive into the text, I kind of want us to, to, to think about those phrases a bit more deeply. Right, you imagine if the Apostle Paul walked into our gathering right now. And imagine if he said this to us, Southwest Evangelical Church, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your church does more harm than good. Southwest Evangelical Church, you despise the church of God. You're drinking judgment on yourselves. And he says all of this regarding their conduct when they gather to have the Lord's Supper. I hope you're wondering what the Corinthian church were doing. And and just as importantly, whether we at this church might be possibly doing the same thing. Are we getting things right? And I hope we're desiring to look carefully at what Paul is saying in order that we examine ourselves and we examine our church. Let me pray, and then we'll get into that first point, the problem that the Lord suffered. Father God, we thank you that you speak. And sometimes the words you speak aren't uh, things that tickle us and just make us happy and and joyful necessarily. They're, They're sometimes really stern and really harsh. And this is certainly the case as we open your words to this particular chunk of scripture. And we're, we're some, I know for a lot of us, we're, we're kind of familiar with this. There are words in this passage that we know pretty well. And so I ask that you be um, opening our eyes to see your word afresh today. And open our hearts to hear you speak and use me as we do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what was going on? in the church at Corinth? What was going on? That's probably the natural next question uh, that we're going to address in our first point, the problem at the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul points out in verse 18, have a look, that when the Corinthian church gathered together, that there are divisions among them. There are divisions among them. Now, if you're familiar with this book in 1 Corinthians, that's as obvious as saying that there are divisions in our national and liberal party at the moment. But there have been so many divisions across the book, haven't there? Right at the beginning, back in chapter 1, we saw that there were some that said that they followed Paul. Others said they followed Apollos. There were divisions in the church with leaders in the church that, they were, that, that people were fanboying with, who they preferred. There were divisions in the church, as Paul writes, uh, them, them potentially having lawsuits against each other. Right? Even just in the last few weeks, we have seen divisions between believers being spiritually wounded and destroyed because other believers put their rights ahead of considering others. And that's just to name a few of the divisions that have happened. Now Paul, in this particular part of 1 Corinthians, he's speaking about a division that is entirely different, as terrible as what we've just talked about already is. Uh, what he's talking about, this particular division, isn't Divisions that are, you know, part and parcel of every single church, as kind of verse 18 and 19 talk about. Um, Paul is talking about yet another way the church is dividing itself. And what the, whatever this decision is, uh, division is, uh, will lead Paul to conclude in verse 20, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. See, even when they're meeting specifically to have the Lord's Supper, Paul sees that whatever this specific act of divisiveness is, it is so harmful that their supper has no resemblance with the Lord's Supper. It'd be like if Paul again was to visit our church and saw our gatherings and say, when you come together, God isn't worshipped and honoured whatsoever. This is a slap in the face. And so what are the Corinthians doing that is causing this division? Well, uh, I think that's where we have to do a bit of digging, historically. See, the Lord's Supper was celebrated um, quite, quite differently back in the first century. It was celebrated as part of a larger meal. Now, if you're new to church, uh, and if you are warm welcome to you, Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion or known as the Eucharist and other traditions is a meal that was started by Jesus and is celebrated with two elements, the bread and the cup of wine or here, for child-friendly purposes, juice. All right? Back in the first century, um, they would have had the bread element first. They would have done that first like we would have. Then they'd have actually a meal A big meal in between, and then they'd end their gathering by taking the cup. Um, And because they didn't have buildings to meet in like we do, gatherings with these meals, they would take place in homes, homes of church members, homes of wealthy church members, because only the wealthy could own homes back then. And so using this information, what Paul says in verse 21, right, about one remains hungry, yet another gets drunk. And what he says in verse 22 about those who humiliate, those who have nothing in contrast to those who have homes to eat and drink in, that's going to give us a bit of shape now to what is going on. See, what's going on here, the division that is happening is a division of class. It's a division of class from those who have much economically to those who have little. The churches we have seen throughout the letter was identical to the Greco-Roman world around them. They they were promoting the same values that the world around them valued. The world around them stratified by wealth, by class, by social standing, and the church was doing the same thing, and Paul was appalled by this. And in fact, most of the letter of 1 Corinthians is kind of addressing directly that. So how did the Corinthian church divide itself by class? Well, That's a little bit tricky to know uh, because we're literally just reading one side of a conversation. This is Paul writing a letter in response to something and we don't have that other thing. Uh, But from the hints that we get from these few verses, these class divisions that were happening, they were happening when they were physically together, verse 18, in the actual eating, verse 21. Now I'm convinced that what was happening here is while they are together, after they've had the bread, when they're having the meal the wealthier members of the Corinthian church, they're getting stuck into like premium grade A5 wagyu beef, right? They're getting stuck into that sort of thing while the poor would be sucking any meat that was left off an off cut, right? And then they'd finish the gathering with the cup. Now, obviously, it wasn't exactly that, but you get my drift, right? Depending on their socioeconomic position, the meals they ate between the bread and the cup were drastically different, both in terms of quantity and so you see the dilemma, right? At this very same gathering, possibly even at the very same table, you would have the wealthy one eating lavishly, while the one maybe even sitting just next to him would have little to nothing. They'd have to eat their bits of food in humiliation in the presence of the wealthy and leave hungry. This BYO dinner has divided this church. And at surface, right, there's so much wrong. table manners, selfishness. But for Paul, the problem stems from something deeper. Their theology, their understanding of God, as it so often is. So we'll move on to our second point, the solution. Now, it really is unsurprising where Paul goes, right? Paul takes his argument back to Jesus and his very words about this supper that they're gathering for. Now, how exactly does going back to Jesus' words help this situation? I want to suggest two ways it directly helps. It helps because um, by going back, we see the gospel provides the shape for the Lord's Supper, as you'll see in your outlines, and then the gospel then sets the stakes for the Lord's Supper. So firstly, the gospel provides the shape for the Lord's Supper. We're looking at verses 23 to 26 here. Um, We'll begin by looking at the unified shape the gospel gives the Lord's Supper. Now, part of the problem why we might not see um, uh, why Jesus' words directly help the situation is because uh, we might be familiar with the words in verses 23 to 25. We kind of, we kind of read them out every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, but we often, the problem is we often interpret these verses as individuals. As in, whenever Paul says, you, in those verses, we would usually take that to mean me, as in individual me. But actually, whenever Paul uses the word here, he's actually using it in the plural, as in you all. Let me read out these verses for you again with this addition in mind, right? Um, For I received, verse 23, from the Lord, what I also passed on to you all. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant on my blood. Do this whenever you all drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you all eat this bread, and you all drink this cup, you all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see what Paul's saying here, right? As he quotes Jesus, he's, he's saying that Jesus isn't saying that this is my body broken for you individual Christian. He's saying this. He's saying, This is my body given for you, for all of you together. See, friends, it's not the individual eating or the individual drinking that proclaims the death of the Lord in verse 26. No. It's the eating and drinking together, in unity, together, that does. Now, remember earlier that I said that Paul sees a deeper underlying theological problem? What's that problem? I hope you're beginning to see that it's that the wealthy are either ignorant of or perhaps have forgotten the corporateness, the togetherness, the unity that because of the gospel now make up their identity as the people of God. That's the problem. So many of the problems Paul has recently addressed suggests that they probably thought that they were saved to do as they pleased as individuals. Right, The fact that Paul, in the last chapter, had to say things like, sure, you have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And he's had to say things like, don't seek your own good, but for the, but the good of others. Seek the good of many. Right? Their actions are coming from this place that they're only thinking about themselves. They're thinking of themselves as individuals doing what individuals want to do, rather than thinking of the wider body, the wider family, that they are now a part of. And in chapter 12, he's going to spend a lot of time addressing this fact that we are one body made up of many parts. And so friends, being saved means that we are not saved to be alone. We're not. We are saved and swept up into a community, into a family with God as our Father. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you met, you met somebody, a man outside uh, church, after church today, um, and he was placing a bet on the outcome of the Bledisloe Cup right? he's placing a bet on the Bledisloe Cup after church now all well and good I, I suppose in a way but then you find out he's just placed a bet so sizable on our country to win the cup which is bad enough that he then drains his entire savings and he doubles his existing mortgage loan now that's not so well and good all of a sudden is it? that's pretty foolish right? And then you find out that uh, he's not alone. He has a wife. He has two young children who have just started primary school. And his decision and his bet has just put their entire livelihoods in jeopardy. Now, what he's done definitely isn't so well and good, is it? It's it's unbelievably selfish, really. Inconsiderate. Irresponsible. Inconceivable. Now, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say this, But I think this is pretty similar to how Paul is seeing these wealthy Corinthians. He's going, How dare you, at the expense of your own family, act so incredibly selfish? How dare you act so inconsiderately, irresponsibly? How dare you disregard your unity? It is inconceivable what you do. Because of the gospel, you are brothers, you are family. Because of the gospel, you are united. And that's why he goes back to what Jesus says. Now, before we move on, I just want to say a quick word of those of you here again uh, who might be investigating Christianity. You might have come to Fresh during the week or you might just be visiting um, and you're kind of checking out Christianity. And I I want to say um, that it's pretty sad that the church so often is um, out of tune with the melody of the gospel we actually believe in. We see it right here for the church in Corinth, which you might be surprised to see to find even something like this in the Bible, right? That there are divisions and that it, it's portraying that the church is broken. If that's you, if you're new and, and you're kind of going, "What's going on with the church? Why are you guys so hypocritical?" My hope for you is is, is twofold. My first hope is that uh, that you examine the actual gospel, not the often out of tune rendition that we have of it. You look at Jesus, look at His example, look at His words, look at His actions, His sacrifice, ask questions about Him. Wrestle with that first and foremost. But my second hope is this, that you would still hold the bar high for the church. Not the bar you set for us, though, uh, but the bar that Jesus does. Because it's most likely that that bar is actually far higher. Because while we often stuff it up, just as Paul turns the Corinthian church back to the gospel as a source of all change and reform. The gospel likewise is meant to change our hearts and overflow into all our lives. If you're investigating Christianity, hold the church to the standard that Jesus sets for us. Because we ought to be striving to live more consistently with the gospel. Okay, so we've looked at the unifying shape of the gospel uh, that that it gives to the Lord's Supper. Let's move on to how the gospel gives um, self- Um, a self-sacrificial shape, right? That the gospel gives a self-sacrificial shape to the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus' body was broken. That's symbolized in the bread. And Jesus' blood shed is symbolized in the cup, that second element. See, at the very heart of this meal that we're going to celebrate at the end of, of today's gathering, the elements of the bread and cup is a commemoration that Jesus died willingly He died willingly for you. He died willingly for them back in Corinth. And he gave everything up for us and for them. That's what we're celebrating. And yet, in this gathering, when they're supposed to be remembering this meal, what's the Corinthian church doing? What are the wealthy people doing at this church? They're doing the exact opposite, aren't they? They're being gluttonous. They're being inconsiderate. They're withholding. They're giving up absolutely nothing When the whole purpose of the meal is modeling Jesus' self-sacrifice. When we go out to eat, if we go on a diet, or if we're deciding what to cook, most of us are concerned about what it is we are eating. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, that's pretty much, that's no different in a lot of ways. We we still care about that. We care about what we are eating. We care about each element, the bread, the cup, and what what it represents in terms of a symbol. But it is just as important to consider how and the manner in which we're eating it. Paul in verse 26 tells us that whenever we eat the bread and we drink this cup, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the Lord's death until Jesus returns. And so each time we have the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing. We're We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He returns. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me begin by saying what it doesn't mean. What this doesn't mean to proclaim the Lord's death, this doesn't mean the, the short explanation that Pastor Pete might give um, before we, about the Lord's Supper before, before we take it together. Also, what it also doesn't mean is somehow the Lord's Supper is a, a, a really helpful method of um, evangelism, to do evangelism. We should use that as a gospel tract or something like that. Right? What Paul is saying, though, is that our participation... The manner in which we take the Lord's Supper, that itself proclaims the gospel. Does that make sense? The action itself proclaims the gospel, not words, action. It's kind of like how we say actions speak louder than words, right? Here the act of the Lord's Supper, participating to the Lord's Supper, non-verbally proclaims the gospel loudly and clearly. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread, as we drink the juice, we proclaim this gospel by participating in a manner that is consistent with the heart and significance behind the meal, as unified, self-sacrificial gospel people. The Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper individually, selfishly. And so it's little wonder that Paul describes their gathering resembling so little of the Lord's supper. Because at the very heart of the supper is a unifying and self-sacrificial gospel. We can't miss this shape. And so as Jesus follows, we need to be reminded of this regularly, don't we? Let me read out to you um, what uh, Don Carson writes about the church. He writes, uh, what binds us as in the church together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and know Him, a common allegiance. They have all been loved by Jesus Himself. They commit themselves to doing what He says, and He commands them to love one another. And this is key. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Have a look at that last line again. We are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. How's that for a line? And he's right to an extent, isn't he? Church can be made up of social lines and divisions that in the world around us, rarely if at all mixed together. And yet because of Christ, we are unified and we are called to sacrifice. And just to apply this a little bit, this collides, I think, head on with the consumer mentality we increasingly see in church, our church here included. We might come to church purely for our validation, our maybe inspiration or our benefit. We might have this pursuit of an ideal that we might know that there's no perfect church on one hand, but yet we still dream, yet we still visit churches as if there might be. We kind of keep one foot out of the door even after we commit. We might subtly and quietly be thinking, what's in this for me? We might keep a lookout for better preaching, better community, better music, better Sunday school, and so on and so forth. Don't get me wrong, right? There are good reasons to move elsewhere, but my point is simply this. The unifying and self-sacrificial gospel that we believe and we hold on to, and that we commemorate at the Lord's Supper, that flies in the face of consumerism. Do you have a temptation to view church this way? If you do, the gospel speaks strongly against it. Um, we'll secondly look at how how the gospel uh, not just provides a shape for the Lord's Supper, but also then, it then sets the stakes for it as well. Now, we'll be looking at the rest of the verses in the chapter here. Uh, if you looked at this passage in community groups this week, um, perhaps this section towards the end of the chapter um, brought a whole a bunch of whole uh, different questions for you uh, because the consequences here seem to be really confusing and perhaps even overly strong. For the sake of time, we, don't go through, we won't go through every verse, but essentially, Paul, in verse 29, describes the Corinthians as those who have drunk judgment on themselves. In verse 30, Paul ties their malpractice with the Lord's Supper with the fact that real harm has come on them, right? Uh, some are now weak, Some are now sick. Some have fallen asleep. Now, this isn't a falling asleep because they're bored or anything, right? This is about people physically dying in the midst of the church. This is physical illness, physical weakness, physical death. And Paul in verse 31 says that the cause of this isn't random. This is discipline. This is judgment from God for their malpractice. Now, what are we to make of all of this? How, how do we even begin to process this? Do we even have a category to think about this sort of stuff? Um, and how does this shape our practice as we come to the Lord's Supper after the sermon today? Uh, let me start by sa- saying this, right? What this ought to tell us really clearly is that God loves His church deeply and profoundly. What it tells us is the Lord's Supper is a tangible, physical, and experiential reminder and a sign to God's people of exactly how much God loves His church. Can I encourage you for a moment? Have a look around the room. Seriously, have a look. Look, turn behind you, around you. What do you see? There are men, there are women. Not too many children because they're out in kids' church, but... Married, singles, separated, widows, people from different countries, backgrounds, cultures, those who may be more educated than others, not so much. Some uh, with good health, others struggling. Now, what does God see? As He looks around, God sees His beloved people, His church those he dearly loves those who he has made every effort to pursue in order that they might enjoy, they might enjoy access and relationship with him he sees those that he has sacrificially given himself he sees those that he has unified in christ See, friends, if we begin to see verses 27 through to 34 from the perspective of how deeply God's love is for His church, that He would even send His Son all the way to the cross for her place and die for her, it is at the very least understandable, as troubling as everything that is listed there is, why there might be dire consequences, and discipline even, for those within the church that cause harm to the very people God so deeply cherishes. And so what are we to make of this? Well, as people living in the 21st century, uh, we have to be careful not to overapply. We've kind of looked at the dangers of over-application over the l- last few weeks, really. What this is not saying is that all physical death, sickness, and weakness come from a result of church division. It's not saying that, because that just wouldn't be true, would it? Neither is this saying that uh, God's discipline and judgment falls only on those who have actually abused the Lord's Supper. We don't know who the judgment has fallen on. It doesn't doesn't seem to be evidence of a one-to-one sort of thing, where if I've stuffed it up, I'm the one who gets judgment. We don't know. We also can't go so far as to say that those who divide the Lord's Church and abuse the Lord's Supper will absolutely, definitively come under God's judgment in this present life. We can't say that. Again, that would be taking it too far. But what we can say is that if discipline and judgment in the present life does occur to believers, we shouldn't be surprised. Again, God deeply loves His church and can discipline those who are harming it, even now. Because in a sense, we ought to know better. And while in verse 32, and this is pretty important, he doesn't go so far as to remove salvation, the threat of divine judgment is real. And is a real warning for us. And so how does it impact what we do at the Lord's Supper? How does this, does this change anything even? What now? What about us? Well, the first question I want to ask is, have we already solved it? maybe, I mean the issue, remember for the Corinthians was with this meal that they had in between the bread and the cup it was at the meal in between that they were gluttonous and selfish and withholding we don't have that at church we kind of take this little bit of bread and this little bit of cup you can try to indulge in that all all you like, smash the bread, smash the shot of Ribena if you like, chances are you're not going to do anything so have we solved it? the answer is no, isn't it? Because although our meal looks really different, the heart of the matter is that there was an unwillingness to consider other members in the church, especially in a context a context like the Lord's Supper that's meant to celebrate the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. And as we've seen right through, right, and perhaps maybe you've even felt a tugging by the Spirit as we've kind of looked at this, this same attitude can plague a church. It can plague our church, can't it? And so, here are some questions for you, um, church. When you come forward, when the when the plate and the cup gets passed around, are you mindful of the wider body that you're a part of? Are you mindful of that? Do you celebrate the Lord's forgiveness to you as you take the bread and drink the cup, while harbouring unforgiveness towards others in this very church? Are you deliberately harboring or maybe even encouraging division? Could be active, could be passive. Maybe even through gossip. Are you unwilling to live out the implications of the gospel when it impinges on your personal freedom? Your preferences, your money, your career, your time, taking responsibility of things that actually require sacrifice? I mean, these are far from exhaustive questions. But this is the sort of self-examination and discernment that Paul encourages the Corinthians, and by extension, us to do in verses 28 to 29. We equally must lean in to the very same gospel that saved us and heed the warnings from this passage. See, self-examining and discerning, it doesn't mean that therefore people who aren't yet Christians shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because they might drink judgment on themselves. Maybe you've heard that before. But it seems pretty unlikely because who's Paul speaking to? He's speaking to believers, isn't he? Neither does self-examining and discerning mean that you have to reach some level or state of self-introspection and confession and like reach this level of purity that means that you can now take the bread and the cup in a worthy manner. Maybe that's been your experience growing up at church that it's kind of been taught to you. You've got to, you've got to reach this level of goodness and worthiness before you take the bread and the cup. thats it has been the same for me. That's how I've been taught. But I don't think that's true either because I'm, I think there's a rightness actually in coming to take the Lord's Supper feeling unworthy, right? If all we did was come to get the bread and the cup when we felt worthy and up for it, we'd probably never get it. Paul isn't instructing that we need to be worthy. He's instructing that our eating and our drinking of it needs to be worthy. But also, as we've seen, the unworthy manner that Paul's talking about here is that the Corinthians haven't thought about the wider church, the wider body that they're a part of, their brothers and sisters. And because they haven't done that, they've divided and despised the church of God. That's what is unworthy, See, this, is, this has been a really challenging word for me, actually, this week. Um, I actually messaged a whole bunch of people in our church um, just to kind of share some causes or reasons of maybe, um, sadly, uh, previous churches that have had breakdowns and divisions. It could have been significant, could have been insignificant, doesn't matter. But the reason why I did that was I wanted to encourage us as a church to be wary And sensitive to whether our church was on a similar trajectory. Right? And to see whether uh, we were part of that in any way, and to urge us to consider the warnings in this passage. What I found out, however, which was really challenging, was that most of the responses, I reckon about 80% of them, um, talked about division that began at the leadership level. 80% of them. And that was really confronting because it was, it was confronting because it stopped and it made me think, Dom, if you were causing division in the church, in our church, Southwest Evangelical Church, if you were causing division in any way, whether deliberately or accidentally, if you wronged someone, if forgiveness was required, Dom, what would you do? Do you care enough about honoring Jesus and living out the gospel, that you would be willing to do everything in your power to seek forgiveness and reconciliation? And here's what was a little bit more confronting in the here and now on the every Sunday. Would you be willing to let the bread and cup pass you by in order to repent and seek out reconciliation first? Would you heed the warning in this passage? And I kept thinking, I mean, how bad would that look? If a leader of the church didn't take the bread and the cup? But that's the, that's the application, isn't it? That's where the rubber hits the road. And so if you are an elder, if you are a deacon, if you are a leader in our church in any capacity, and if you're a pastor, know that God has given us a tremendous Privilege to serve his people, which also means we have a tremendous potential to also hurt his people, his beloved people, his church. And while the Lord's Supper is God's gift to us, if this passage tells us anything, it's that it is far more important, far more important to take the bread and cup in a worthy manner. Not because that's just something we're commanded to do and let's just do it because it's for the sake of doing it. It's because it's consistent with the gospel we believe in. It's consistent with the gospel that has saved you. Would you hear the warning? Now, we're going to close now. We're going to um, have a time of response as well as we, as we take the Lord's Supper and there really couldn't be a more fitting week to do it, right? But for many of you today, a good response as you take the Lord's Supper might be to reflect on the gospel. Reflect on Jesus' death for you, the relationship to Him that He's won for you, the extravagant love that He pours out to you, but not just to you. This family, this community of which you are a part. Savor it. But I think there are some of you today, perhaps that a good response might actually be to let the bread and cup pass you by and instead repent and initiate reconciliation. Maybe you need to walk across the room to speak with someone. Nobody's going to look. Maybe you need to initiate a conversation after the service. Or maybe if they're not here, you need to begin a text message to to, to even start it. I know that reconciliation is a two-way street, but the question is, have you done everything in your power to make it happen? Church, church, I pray that the gospel would shape our motivation to live out the unity we already share and push us towards the self-sacrifice as Jesus did to each other, for one another, for him. Southwest, the stakes are high. And on that note, I'll get the band to come up uh, and we'll stand and sing.